Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Three, two, one. When I'm working out, I love to listen to your podcast. Whenever you say something, other people react to it. Taking my breath away, Aaron. Fern Lundquist joins me. Hall of Famer. Jim Calhoun, NASCAR icon Dale Earnhardt Jr. Kirk Herbstreet is on the phone. Here. Welcome in, everybody. We. Yeah. Oh, America, the Air Tour Sports Podcast. It is Monday, December 7th. 2020 people i hope everybody had a great weekend uh and it was a very busy weekend in what we do here on this show which is college football college basketball this will go down as one of the busier shows that we have had in a while we are going to recap college football recap college basketball starting on the football side really quick uh i do think that i've spent so much time talking about individual teams and players and matchups probably haven't spent enough time just talking about the playoff picture so with bama florida uh, you know, Clemson, Notre Dame, all rolling. Don't know that there's any individual thing to take out of those games as much as it talks about what is the playoff picture, what has to happen, who has a realistic shot, who doesn't. So we will get into that. We will then transition to maybe the game of the year, or at least one of the most entertaining ones we've had all year. BYU Coastal Carolina. Couple thoughts on that. We will actually wrap the college football segment on some coaching news. Uh, Shane Beamer, Oklahoma tight ends coach, goes to South Carolina. Safe to say, yeah, yeah, I got a lot of opinions on that one. And then I will update you on Jim Harbaugh. It's been a while since we've done Harbaugh Talk with Torres on this show. But I do think a very interesting weekend where two differing reports on Jim Harbaugh came out. One saying that he was eyeing the NFL. Two saying that there will actually be an extension and he will stay at Michigan. And I have some good sourcing over at Michigan. I talked to a lot of people over the course of the weekend. And I do think I have some interesting stuff to kind of bring to the table on that. We will then take a break and transition to basketball. We do have a lot of Kentucky fans that listen to this show. And I understand the frustration of the Kentucky fan base after a third straight loss. So if you come here for college basketball, in the show notes, it will tell you where you can find the college basketball stuff. And uh, yeah, safe to say that there was a lot to talk about with Kentucky uh, after a third straight loss of a lot of frustration coming out of the fan base. And frankly, I don't blame him. I think when you give John Calipari the resources and availability that he has, uh, you need to be better than one and three right now. You need to be better than one and three. So busy show. Before we get started, as I always tell you, please make sure you're subscribed to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. You can do it on iTunes, the Podcast Addict app. 
Podbean, Spotify, TuneIn Radio, wherever you subscribe to the podcast, make sure that you're subscribed to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. Also, make sure to rate and review the show. Go ahead, give us a quick five stars. Let us know what you like and what you don't like. Uh, Giving us a five-star rating really does help us move up those iTunes charts. And as always, as I tell you, make sure you're following on social media at Aaron underscore Torres on Twitter at Aaron Torres Pod on Instagram. And I will tell you this. I mentioned it on last episode, but if you're looking for something for the holidays, uh, Cameo.com, Cameo.com slash Aaron underscore Torres. I'm part of the Cameo team. And if you want a little personalized uh, message for your father, son, brother, sister, mom, dad, whomever, uh, make sure you go to Cameo.com slash Aaron underscore Torres. Uh, for people who don't know, it is personalized messages from people uh, that are in the public space. I, I'm certainly not even close to important enough to call myself a celebrity, but you can go there. Uh, and I know we have a lot of uh, fathers and sons who listen to this show, friends who listen to this show. So if you want a personalized message for a friend, for Christmas, for the holidays, for whatever, go to cameo.com. You can also shoot me a DM on Twitter or Instagram. I will get you the information there. And with that said, people, there is no more time to waste. Let's get into it. Because we are now incredibly down to two weekends left in the college football. If you want to call it the regular season, I guess you could call it the regular season. I mean, because we're going to have uh, games this weekend, then we will have championship games the following weekend, but other teams will keep on playing. Just a bizarre season where uh, there were a bunch of programs that finished their season on Saturday. South Carolina, Kentucky have finished their regular season. Arizona State played their second game of the regular season on Saturday. So it is obviously an unprecedented year. And what I thought I would lead the show with is this, is that I do think that sometimes I I get so caught up in what are the storylines? Alabama, greatest team ever, and Brian Kelly, Notre Dame, Jim Harbaugh, whatever. And what I really realized is that I don't think I've done just a good enough job of kind of painting the picture of what matters in college football, which is the race for the college football playoff. And this is a good weekend, I think, to lead the show with this because we have really had no movement at the top uh, of college football at all. Incredibly, the top four in some way, shape, or form has been Alabama, Ohio State, Notre Dame, and Clemson. Those teams have moved a little bit. But since Ohio State came back to play in October, the top four has remained the same. And really, the top seven in the playoff rankings have not changed. And there was nothing on Saturday that made it change at all, right? Alabama was a 30-point favorite and dominated. Um, Ohio State dominated Michigan State. Notre Dame dominated Syracuse. Clemson dominated Virginia Tech. Florida dominated Tennessee. And so when you look at the big picture of the college football landscape, not all that much changed on Saturday. And so I figured rather than uh, you know spending too much time breaking down an Alabama win that we all saw and it was embarrassing and there was nothing to really add, What I thought I would do is instead just kind of just get you caught up on the playoff picture. What's happening? What needs to happen? Who's realistically able to get in? Who isn't? And all of that good stuff. And so what I'm going to start with is what I think is the most logical place, which is the teams that I think will get there. And then at that point, I will then break down the three kind of crazy scenarios that could create chaos for the college football playoff picture. First of all, I think it's safe to say at this point, 
that if, if, if I think anybody who follows college football had to guess, I do think the most logical four to make the college football playoff are Alabama, Notre Dame, Clemson, and Ohio State, right? Alabama, even if they go to the SEC, if they go to the SEC championship game, they're going to be favored over Florida. That, that situation is set. I have seen no reason to believe that Alabama will not beat Florida, make it to the playoff. The Notre Dame-Clemson deal, Clemson will be favored against Notre Dame on a neutral field in Charlotte. And if Notre Dame basically needed overtime to beat Clemson, if Clemson needed overtime to lose to Notre Dame in South Bend, there's plenty of reason to believe that when Trevor Lawrence is on the field that Clemson is going to get a victory. At that point, both teams would be 10-1. and one. Uh, Both teams would be in good shape to make the playoff. And then finally, you have Ohio State in the Big Ten. And clearly, their situation is a lot different than everybody else's. They're at most going to play seven games this year. And the Michigan game this weekend is very much in jeopardy. And so because of it, we could be looking at a realistic situation where they only play six games. Although, again, we've heard it. We've talked about it on the last episode. The Big Ten seems to want to get Ohio State both into the Big Ten championship game and then also figure out a way to get them an extra game this weekend if for some reason uh, Ohio State cannot play Michigan. And that reason, of course, would be Michigan has too many positive COVID tests. We'll talk about that situation with Jim Harbaugh in a little bit. But I bring all this up to say that that that's the four that I think we all kind of understand like, okay, unless something crazy happens, it's probably going to be Bama. Notre Dame, Clemson, and Ohio State. And so what I figured I'd do is very simply this. As I would give you the three scenarios where I do think could cause craziness for the college football playoff committee and really uh, alter how things uh, shake out and what ends up happening going forward. And so I think those three scenarios are very simply this. The first one, Florida wins the SEC title game. What happens there? Notre Dame beats Clemson for a second time. Would that eliminate Clemson? We'll talk about momentarily. And then the third is, of course, if Ohio State were to lose one of their next two games. So first of all, let's start with the idea of Florida losing or beating Alabama, excuse me, in the SEC championship game. This is no disrespect to Dan Mullen, no disrespect to that program. But if that happens, it would be considered a shocker. I've put out feelers to friends in Vegas, friends of mine that are in Vegas. Alabama, assuming nothing crazy happens this weekend, if they have Najee Harris, Devontae Smith, and Mac Jones in Atlanta for the SEC championship game, they are going to be a double-digit favorite. So it would be a surprise if Florida wins that game. And if they did, it would probably be the most chaotic thing that could happen for the college football playoff scenario. And the very simple reason is this. All of a sudden now, you really have five teams that are really qualified for four spots in the college football playoff, because in that case, you would have Florida out of the SEC, Alabama would be 10-1, and and it'd be hard after a season in which Alabama went undefeated in the SEC regular season to keep them out of the playoff. Assuming Clemson beats Notre Dame, you have two really qualified teams out of the ACC, Clemson being 10-1, and Notre Dame being 10-1, and and assuming Ohio State wins out, it, it, you have Ohio State sitting there at 7-0 and or 8-0 and or 6-0, and excuse me. And so to me, that is the, the single scenario that assuming like chaos doesn't happen, right? Like assuming that Alabama doesn't lose to Arkansas next weekend or Ohio State doesn't get upset by this team. That is the scenario that I think causes the most chaos for the college football playoff situation because if that happens, you now have five teams that are really qualified for those four spots. In my opinion, it would be advantage. Obviously, look, Florida's getting in. 
if Florida is the SEC champ at 10-1 and one with a win over Alabama, who was the number one team in the country all year, Florida would get in in that scenario. I also believe Alabama would be in. At that point, they would, have, they would still have two wins over teams that are currently ranked in the top 10, Georgia, which closes out their season this weekend against Missouri, and Texas A&M, who still has two more games left. But both those teams are in the top 10 right now. Alabama beat them both by 17-plus points. They beat Texas A&M, who could finish 9-1 and by 28 points. And so they would probably have the best resume uh, in college football, even with a loss to Florida. And so because of that, uh, I think you're looking at a situation where there's three spots, three teams for two spots. Do you take Clemson and Notre Dame both out of the ACC? Do you only take one team out of the ACC, and do you take Ohio State? And which teams do you get in that scenario? The reason I think that it is the most interesting and why there's three qualified teams is I also think it brings up what is, to me, the most fascinating question in the dynamic of the college football playoff right now. And that dynamic is very simply this. How do you compare teams that didn't even start their season until the end of October with teams that have basically been going strong since July, right? And so in this scenario, that brings this situation to a head. Because if Florida wins the SEC championship game, Clemson wins the ACC championship game, I think Florida, Alabama, and Clemson are all very comfortably into the playoff. And then the question becomes, uh, is it a 10-1 Ohio State team or a 10-1 Notre Dame team or a 7-0 Ohio State team? And how do you compare a Notre Dame team which went 10-1 with an Ohio State team that went 7-0 and didn't even start their season until Notre Dame was basically at the halfway point? And so to me, that is the most interesting question in this college football playoff dynamic because when I look at the college football playoff committee, I think that is the toughest thing that they will have to ask themselves. How do we punish a team that has been on the field doing everything they can to get games in since July, especially when it's compared with a team that hasn't, that wasn't on the field, that wasn't playing games, that basically was running through walkthroughs with no pads on through the middle of September and then decided to come late to the party? And I do think it's a fascinating question, and I don't know what the answer is, but I'll tell you this. This is just my personal opinion, right? I think it's going to be tough because there's two things that I think would go contrast in that situation. Remember, the committee is filled with not only ADs and people of that nature, but also of former coaches, of quote-unquote football guys, right? I know that's like a big cliche, part of my take, they're great at what they do, football guy. Well, how does a football guy sit there and say one of two things? We're going to punish this team that's been playing since July, that has had no break, and oh, by the way, their only loss was to Clemson, who's maybe the best team in the country, preseason number one, at full strength. How do we punish Notre Dame? But then also the football guy thing is also the Herm Edwards, right? You play to win the game. Well, if Ohio State is 7-0, and at that point, how do you punish Ohio State, which won every game on their schedule? They'd be the Big Ten champ. And how do you fix that dichotomy? Now, if it was me, I hate to say it, Ohio State fans, I would give advantage Notre Dame. To me, I believe that unless Notre Dame gets blown out by Clemson, right, that's the other variable here. If Notre Dame gets blown out by Clemson, then you can kind of look at that first game and say, well, you know, they were at home, no Trevor Lawrence, Clemson still got them to overtime, they lost there. But if Notre Dame plays Clemson competitively, and I think they will, 
I would have to give advantage to Notre Dame, which had four or five games under their belt before Ohio State even came back. And so to me, that is the fascinating dynamic of the first situation. What happens if Florida wins the SEC championship and you essentially have five spots for four teams? The next two situations I think are equally as interesting because it's the opposite. You only have three spots for four. You only have three teams that are definitively set for four spots. And so let's talk about those two. So let's talk about the scenario actually that I believe that nobody is talking about, which I think is at least feasible and could happen. And that is the idea of Notre Dame beating Clemson for a second time in the ACC championship game. In this scenario, Ohio State would be undefeated, so Ohio State would be in. Notre Dame would be undefeated with two wins over Clemson, so not only would Notre Dame be in, I think they should probably be the number one seed at that point. And then, of course, Alabama's in, assuming that they beat Florida. Well, this is the scenario, first of all, that you want if you're a Texas A&M fan. Texas A&M fans need Alabama to beat Florida, eliminating the possibility of a second SEC team, and then they need either Ohio State to lose or they need Clemson to lose for a second time. And then all of a sudden, is Texas A&M the best team at 9-1 in that scenario? I also think this is where it opens the door for Cincinnati. Cincinnati needs help, but the one thing I will say that they have going for them, the best team on their schedule this year is probably Tulsa. They play Tulsa this weekend, and then they could play Tulsa again in the AAC championship game. All of a sudden, Cincinnati wins those two games and wins them convincingly. All of a sudden, the Bearcats are sitting there saying, wait a second now, wait a second now. A&M got smoked by the best team on their schedule. Uh, we're sitting here at 10-0, and won our conference, beat a top 25 team twice in the last two weeks. We at least got to be considered, right? And so I think that is the scenario that the A&M fan would be hoping for, Alabama winning the SEC championship, but then Notre Dame also winning the ACC championship. But I want to throw one more curveball at you in that scenario because there's one curveball that I don't think anybody is talking about that I do think is at least worth considering here, and I haven't heard anyone else say it besides me, but if Alabama wins the SEC championship, eliminating Florida, and Ohio State wins out and they're in, and Notre Dame wins the ACC championship and they're in as an undefeated team, I think the committee, as crazy as it sounds, would at least consider Clemson as a two-loss non-ACC champ. Now, you could be sitting there and say, oh, Torres, you're crazy of all your stupid hot takes, and you've had a lot of them. This is the worst one. And I'm not saying it would happen, right? But here would be the argument for Clemson. They lost one game without their starting quarterback on the road in overtime. The second loss, assuming it's not embarrassing, would be to the presumptive number one team in the country at that point. And are you really going to blame them for losing to Notre Dame twice? And then three, you got to remember a few other things about this whole situation. Remember, the playoff committee's job is to pick the four best teams in college football, okay? It's to pick the four best teams in college football, and that is a very liberal term. Um, liberal in the sense that it can be construed a lot of different ways. Does best mean most dominant? Does best mean NFL talent? Does best mean good relative to their competition? And when you look at Clemson, I'm just telling you, it doesn't look like there are four teams that are better with the eye test than Clemson. With due respect to Cincinnati, Texas A&M fans are going to get mad when I say this. With due respect to A&M, 
I think you can argue that Clemson, even with two losses, looks like the fourth best team in the country behind Notre Dame, Ohio State, and Alabama. I'm not saying it'll happen, and I still think it's a long shot. And in that case, a Clemson fan would be hoping for chaos where Texas A&M were to lose a game, where Cincinnati were to lose a game, and the playoff committee is really backed into having no choice but to putting Clemson in. But I think it's an interesting scenario nobody's talking about, right? Like, everyone's just under this assumption that Clemson is going to beat Notre Dame in the ACC championship game. And to be fair, like, I do think it's a fair assumption. Again, they're going to be favored by a significant margin. Notre Dame barely got by them the first game. So I think it's fair, and I think it's worth asking, and I think it's worth considering, and nobody's talking about it. But I'm just telling you, if it comes down to this, Clemson, even with two losses, I promise you, will at least be considered. I don't see the scenario where they actually would get in unless A&M lost or something crazy happened, but it's something to think about, people. It's something to think about. All right, third scenario I want to get to really quick. This segment's already going longer than I thought. Um, would be if Ohio State were to lose in the Big Ten championship game. Or it, it lose, period, right? It doesn't matter when it is. At that point, I don't think Ohio State has a leg to stand on, right? Like, I think at Clemson, even at 10 and 9, they would be 9 and 2 in that case, I think would have a stronger leg to stand on than Ohio State losing before the end of the regular season. Because I think when you look at Ohio State, first of all, the, the crazy thing about Ohio State that nobody's talking about right now, their resume is really not all that impressive. Now, I'm really impressed by the Indiana win. I said I believe Indiana coach Tom Herman should be national coach of the year. But outside of that, Penn State is down. That win doesn't look good. Notre Dame is in a perpetual two-decade rebuild, okay? That win doesn't look good. You might not play Michigan, and even if you do play Michigan, this team is absolutely terrible. That ain't going to happen. And so when I look at Ohio State, your resume isn't that good. Um, in this scenario, you would have probably lost to either Northwestern or Wisconsin on the final day of the regular season. I don't see any scenario where if Ohio State doesn't win the Big Ten that they're in the college football play. They're not getting in at large. I'm just telling you this. And when I say win the Big Ten, I mean finish the season undefeated. I don't see the scenario. I see the scenario where Alabama gets in if they lose in the, ACC, in the SEC championship. I see the scenario where Notre Dame can get in, even Clemson, but not Ohio State if they lose. And that, of course, opens up the scenario where there's a lot of chaos. And does that fourth spot go to Texas A&M? I think Cincinnati would have a very compelling argument in that case. And I'll tell you this, that would also be the one that brings in some of the odd kind of crazy scenarios where can you get an undefeated 5 or 6-0 and Pac-12 team? Can you get an undefeated uh, Coastal Carolina? I don't think that one's going to happen. Um, can you get a two-loss Big 12 team? Those are the crazy scenarios. I do think if Ohio State loses, though, it would be advantage A&M. It would be advantage Cincinnati. But I do think it's a fair question of, like, what happens if there's no team behind them? What happens if A&M loses a game? What happens if Cincinnati loses a game? But to me, that is the playoff picture. If you're asking me to, to handicap it right now as I record here late December 6th into December 7th, I think the four are going to be Alabama, Alabama, Notre Dame, Clemson, and Ohio State. But I'm telling you, man, Ohio State has ebbs and flows, peaks and valleys. They do have problems. There's the possibility that Clemson loses the second game. And I think there's a possibility that Florida beats Alabama because Florida is a really dynamic offensive team, even though I'm not picking it. One thing I will say, it is going to be fascinating to watch. It's going to be fascinating to see. Cincinnati's got two more games to continue to prove themselves. A&M has two more games to prove themselves. And I do think if A&M finishes 9-1, and they will be in the driver's seat in case an Ohio State takes a loss, in case uh, Clemson takes a second loss in the ACC title game. 
But it's going to be fun to follow. It's going to be fun to follow. And while Saturday's games weren't great, I do think we're headed for a really good playoff where I think Notre Dame, Clemson are both really good out of the ACC. I think Bama's obviously just a juggernaut. I think Ohio State would cause problems for all four of those teams, even if there are some issues with them uh, in the secondary. All right, outside of the playoff picture, a relatively quiet Saturday in college football. Uh, You know, just a few observations. First of all, credit to Ohio State going on the road. Justin Fields was basically playing behind a backup offensive line. If you watch the game, the quarterback couldn't even snap the ball, uh, and, and, and Justin Fields was phenomenal. He was incredible. Um, I'm trying to think of what else happened on Saturday. Uh, great win by Clemson. Obviously, Alabama just unbelievable. Uh, I do not have a Heisman vote. I'll tell you this. I would have Mac Jones, number one. I would have Kyle Trask, number two. You know who I would have, number three? Devontae Smith, the wide receiver at Alabama. He is unbelievable. A total game changer. But because it was quiet, because there wasn't much that happened, I want to talk about two teams that had you asked me on you know, August 29th, when we, when we thought this season was going to kick off. Would you ever talk about these teams on your podcast, Aaron? I, can't, I could have never imagined a world where I talked about BYU and Coastal Carolina, only here we are, it's December, Christmas trees are up in people's houses everywhere, Home Alone is on the screen, and I'm talking Coastal Carolina, BYU on this show. What a world, what a time to be alive, and what a game. Before we get into the actual games themselves, listen, I want to do what everybody else in the media has done, which is give these two programs credit. And I know others did it throughout last week, but it's kind of crazy to think about on the most basic level. When I recorded this podcast on Wednesday night, this game was not made. At that time, Coastal Carolina was supposed to play Liberty, friend of the show, uh, Hugh Freeze, uh, was supposed to be on the sidelines for, for Coastal Carolina's opponent. Liberty has to cancel because of covid And what do you know? These teams on 72 hours notice. I recorded on Wednesday night this game was not set. It was set by Thursday, played on Saturday. So basically in less than 72 hours, this game came together. So credit to both schools first and foremost. I think they are a good metaphor for what I have been talking about on this show since August. I always believed, as you guys know, I've said it a million times, not that we had to play college football this year but that the kids wanted to play, they wanted to give it a shot, and if it just couldn't be done, then it couldn't be done. But these are two of the programs that from the beginning have been part of this college football season. BYU specifically probably deserves a ton of credit. They had almost their entire schedule wiped out. 12 games later, they get 10, 11, 12 games put on the schedule. I believe it ended up being 11. Um, none of, I think one of their opponents was on their original schedule. They made 11 games out of thin air, And has been said by other people, they were the only school west of Texas that was willing to continue to play college football when the entire Pac-12 and the entire Mountain West shut down. So first of all, credit to BYU for just an incredible, incredible, incredible season with what they did. I know people want to try to tear them down, talk about their resume. First of all, it's not their fault that they had seven Power Five teams on the schedule, and all five, you know, all seven of those teams were in conferences that went to conference-only schedules. But also, they pushed through when everyone in their area, everyone in their region, decided not to play football. So, first of all, I want to give credit to BYU. I want to give credit to Coastal Carolina. I want to give credit to both of these teams for just playing this game in general. Um, and I also want to say, like, this was a great game. Like, not sure if you guys got to see it, but came down to the wire. 
Um, Coastal Carolina largely controlled the game, largely controlled the clock. Uh, we're going to get into the dynamics of it in a minute. And it came down to the final minute where Zach Wilson, the BYU quarterback, for people who do not know, Zach Wilson is trending as a first-round NFL draft pick. I actually saw a mock draft from a reputable NFL draft person this week that had him going number two overall behind Trevor Lawrence, ahead of Justin Fields, ahead of Penny Sewell, Penny Sewell, the uh, offensive tackle from Oregon who opted out of the season, ahead of Jamar Chase, ahead of Micah Parsons from Penn State. That is how good Zach Wilson is in the eyes of the NFL people. Now, personally, I'd take Justin Fields over him in a heartbeat, but that's neither here nor there. But the bottom line remains, Coastal Carolina did an incredible job of keeping Zach Wilson in check, of keeping this offense in check, and it came down to the final possession of the game. Coastal Carolina up 22-17, under a minute to go, have to punt the ball back to BYU. BYU's driving, they're making plays. And of course, what does the game come down to? Pass, goal line, it's Kevin Dyson, Titans, Rams, Super Bowl, greatest show on turf. Same thing, just short, no good. BYU loses, Coastal Carolina wins. And so it was an incredible game with an incredible finish. By the way, I don't I don't think uh, Brent Musburger or... Uh, Joe Buck has to worry about their job. That was the worst play-by-play ever, but forgive me, okay? I'm not a play-by-play guy. But it was an incredible finish, uh, an incredible ending to an incredible game. And a couple thoughts here. First of all, I, I, I know I just said it. Give credit to both of these teams. Also give credit to Coastal Carolina, where on a national stage, they literally just went out and showed the world how good they are, right? Like, I think we all kind of looked at them from a distance, and I'm not saying that I did, but I think a lot of people did, of, oh, they're cute, and they got some mullets, and they play on this teal turf, and they got quirky uniforms. They're not going to beat BYU, though. BYU's got a bunch of grown men along the lines of scrimmage, like literally grown men, 22, 23, 24. They got an NFL quarterback. Their running back, Tyler Algier, is incredible. It's a good story, Coastal. You ain't beating BYU, especially on two days' notice. Well, if you watch the game... Coastal Carolina largely dominated. They dominated the line of scrimmage. That number 94 on the defensive line for Coastal Carolina, that dude's going to play in the NFL. Now, a couple plays that were a little sketchy. Probably needs to work on his uh, emotions a little bit, but, like, it was an incredible game, and Coastal was the better team. Six yards per carry on the ground, um, and largely dominated the game. They held Zach Wilson, who came into the game uh, completing 76% of his passes to 19 of 30, which I'm not great at math, but I think that's a little under 66%, like 64%. Um, uh, On the other side, the uh, Coastal Carolina run offense averaged over five yards per carry. Their quarterback, Grayson McCall, was effective, didn't try to do too much with his arm, but made all the right reads. And Coastal Carolina was the deserving winner. This was not fluky. This was not, oh, you know, something happened. No, Coastal Carolina was the better team. They deserve to win. And I'll tell you this. First of all, I want to give credit to the college football, the AP poll, the people who actually do the rankings in the AP poll, and here's why. Um, The new AP poll came out on Sunday, and Coastal Carolina is ranked in the new AP poll. uh, They are ranked number 11 in the country. And I think that's completely appropriate. And to me, this is why. They, that win over BYU is better than anything that a lot of teams have on their resume, and I hope when the college football playoff committee comes out with their new rankings on Tuesday, they acknowledge what Coastal Carolina did. Because when I look at Coastal Carolina, 
That win over BYU is more impressive than anything that Georgia has done, anything that Miami has done, two teams that were in the top 10 last week. And people say, oh, Georgia would kill them. Maybe they would. But Georgia's best win is over a 5-4 and four Auburn team right now. They got smoked by Alabama. They got smoked by Florida. And their best win is over a 5-4 and four Alabama team. They also beat a bad Kentucky team, a bad Tennessee team, a bad Vandy team actually opted out on them this week. Uh, they, they beat Arkansas early in the year before Arkansas figured it out. I mean, you look at their resume. Florida has one win over a team with a winning record. Coastal Carolina, what they did on Saturday was more impressive than anything Georgia's done all year. More impressive than anything Miami has done all year, whose best one was probably at NC State, which is actually like surprisingly good this year. So I hope the committee gives them credit. I hope Coastal Carolina does move up in the rankings. Not saying they should be in the top four. Not saying they should surpass uh, Alabama and Clemson. That's not what I'm saying. But give them credit. They should be about seven to eight, somewhere in there, behind Texas A&M, behind Cincinnati. But that was a really impressive win. My last little thought on this game, by the way, was something that a few people have brought up to me, including my Saturday radio partner, Arnie Spanier on Fox Sports Radio, on my intern, Zach, who both kind of said to me, dude, that was really fun. Like, how do we make that happen every year? And I will say, it did kind of remind me, you guys remember, a lot of you guys, again, are college basketball fans. You guys remember the Bracket Busters games in college basketball, where back in the day, um, you know, these mid-major conferences, uh, you know, they would send, uh, the Missouri Valley would send their best team to play the best team from the WCC. So we'd get a random Wichita State-Gonzaga game or uh, Memphis um, whoever game, right? And it was the small conferences, and it was to give exposure to these small conferences, and that's what this felt like. And I thought it was a great question by both my radio partner, Arnie, my intern, Zach, of like, why can't we do this every year? This was so good for everybody. It was good for both of these programs, even BYU. It was a great national stage for BYU. It was clearly a great national stage for Coastal Carolina, who had college game day in town. Um, it was a great stage for the city of Myrtle Beach, for the Coastal Carolina program, for all the guys with mullets and the teal field. Like It was just great for everybody. And so I was thinking about it. I was like, isn't it all possible that we can do this in the future with college football the way that we used to do it in college basketball with bracket busters. And I don't think it'll be easy because, again, again, games are set months in advance. You can't just leave open dates at the end of the year like you did this year, and you never know who's going to be good and who's not going to be. But I was also, also thinking about it as it pertains to college basketball, and I was also, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me, I was also thinking how it pertains to college basketball in this sense, where I do think some of the smaller conferences in college basketball have done a better job lately of figuring out how to get marquee games for their conference late in the year. So let me give you an example. Conference USA in basketball, this is what they do. They make the final two weeks of the season open dates in college basketball, in Conference USA, and basically what they try to do is give the best teams the most chances to play each other. So the hope is that two or three of them emerge and all of a sudden you go from a conference that's only going to get one bid into the NCAA tournament to maybe two or three. If this team that's in third place picks up two wins over the top-ranked team, maybe that gets you an extra team into the NCAA tournament. And so I was kind of thinking, like, is there a way for these conferences to do that too? Maybe Conference USA, which has Marshall and Florida Atlantic and some good programs down there, is there a way for them to leave... The, 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 the second, you know, Saturday in November open 
and also have the Sun Belt leave the second Saturday of November open and just basically make up games on the fly, right? Like, like basically say, okay, um, you know, first place team in our conference, you go play first place team in their conference. So maybe we do get a Coastal Carolina versus, uh, you know, Marshall late in the year. Or is it BYU? Is it Liberty to Independence saying, hey, we'll leave. How about this? We'll leave week 13 open or week 12 open or whatever, you guys leave your schedule in flux, you send your best team to play us, and we'll make a game out of it. And I know this is a historic year for BYU, it's a historic year for Liberty, so there's no guarantee, but it's just thoughts, because I thought it was a really, really, really cool situation, Um, and I think it's fun, I thought it was fun, I thought it was good for college football, again, I thought it was good for Coastal Carolina, Liberty, or uh, BYU, all, everyone that was involved. And I do hope that we can figure out a way to figure this out going forward because the one thing about college football, I'll tell you, is this. There's been a lot of adjustments and changes on the fly that I think are better for the sport. I think we don't, you know, it's something that somebody, other people have talked about. Do we really need to put, uh, put schedules together 25 years in advance? Do we really need to know that Alabama's going to Texas A&M and, or Texas in 2027 and 2028? Or can we just put games together more on the fly? I don't know. I don't know. But I hope we figure out a way to do this because I did think it was really, really fun. All right. Kind of a natural transition from Coastal Carolina uh, right up the road or down the road or, you know, I'm not going to lie. I'm, I'm not really keen on South Carolina geography. But on the same day that Coastal Carolina, Myrtle Beach, becomes the epicenter of college football for a day, you know what else happened? South Carolina found a new head football coach. They went ahead and hired uh, Oklahoma tight ends coach Shane Beamer. Uh, yeah. Let me just say uh, that I'm a little bit underwhelmed. So let's talk about it. Let's get into it. And let's do a little bit of background. Obviously, look, we all remember what happened at South Carolina a few weeks ago. Uh, Will Muschamp is fired. Actually, right after I recorded that Sunday podcast, Will Muschamp is fired. He is let go. And the search begins. And the AD, Ray Tanner, basically said very simply this. The days of playing games that are 17 to 7 are over. Like we're going for an offensive guy, a creative guy, an interesting guy. And I will say, for South Carolina, this was actually kind of a good year to have a job opening. Because on the one hand, first of all, there just aren't going to be as many jobs that open up. And we all know why. It's the pandemic. It's money. It's this. It's that. And there's also, like, weirdly, a lot of really good candidates right in your area, right? Like, Luke Fickle's not really a possibility at South Carolina. Matt Campbell from Iowa State's not really a possibility. But you got Hugh Freeze right down the road at Liberty, who has had success in the SEC. Um, You have uh, Billy Napier, who is the head coach at Louisiana, who, for people who do not know, um, is from Tennessee but worked at both Clemson and South Carolina State. He never worked at the University of South Carolina, uh, but he worked within the state, knows the state well, recruited the state. So you have that guy. And then, as I just said a minute ago, you have a guy named Jamie Chadwell, who is the head coach at Coastal Carolina that has built this program out of nothing, uh, has put his stamp on it. The players and uh, fans and, and, and everybody involved clearly have fun. They got all the mullets. They do these crazy post-game celebrations. So you have a lot of really good candidates right there. And so forgive me if I can't get excited about the fact that you just hired Oklahoma's tight ends coach, Shane Beamer, okay? And so before we get into why I hate the hire, 
let's get into why the hire does make sense. So the reasons, if you do enough research, you do enough homework, you just read articles, I'm not claiming that I have like expert insight, but if you, if you do your homework, there are logical reasons why this happened. First of all, um, Shane Beamer was the recruiting coordinator, special teams coordinator during basically the heyday of South Carolina football when Steve Spurrier really had it rolling, right? He was the guy that built the ground level relationships with a lot of the best players that were part of the greatest run in program history. And I will say in Shane Beamer's defense, a lot of those best players came to bat for him. Melvin Ingram, star defensive lineman on the LA Chargers, came out and said, this should be the guy that we hire. Uh, DJ Swearinger, big, strong, athletic safety who now plays for the New Orleans Saints, said this should be the guy that we hire. So he has ties to the program. He had the support of the, the, the most prominent alums. Um, he obviously has uh, Beamer as the last name. For people who don't know, his father is the Hall of Famer Frank Beamer, who, by the way, was on this podcast. Hate to brag, but his dad's a friend of the show. Um, and then finally, I will also say in South Carolina's defense, there is just also the possibility that, like, uh, maybe people just didn't want it. Now, I don't think that happened, and I'll get, get into why in a second. But what I will say about South Carolina is that it is not an easy job. Now, it's not a bad job. It's actually a really good job. But again, context always matters, and here's the context. Not only is Florida and Georgia playing at a really high level, and look, I know I'm critical of Kirby Smart, but the guy wins 10 games every year under normal circumstances. Can't beat Bama, can't get to the top, top, top of the sport, but he has Georgia in a really good place. Dan Mullen clearly has Florida in a really good place. And the thing that nobody talks about, it's not only those two teams in your division, it's the fact that Dabo Sweeney has things freaking rolling in the state. And I think that did make this job a little harder to fill from the perspective of, I think a lot of these young, dynamic coaches are sitting there saying, dude, this is my shot. I'm making decent money at, at wherever. Um, and I'm doing well. I'm having success. Do I really want to take my one shot, because once you get fired from a power five, it's really hard to get a second job if you just suck, right? If you have, you know, NCA problems, whatever, it's different. But if you just suck at your job, it's really hard to get a second opportunity. And so I think a lot of these young guys are like, dude, do I really want to go to a place where I am way behind the top two teams in my division? And oh, by the way, I'm also have a juggernaut in my own state in Clemson. So I think that's fair to say. I think it's fair to wonder. I think it's fair to ask if that's really what uh, a, a lot of college coaching candidates would want. That is why I will defend South Carolina, because I do wonder how much interest there was in the job. But what I will also say is this. If Shane Beamer really is your guy, you really want the tight ends coach at Oklahoma, isn't he going to be available? Like in a week from now or two? Like, like, why did you have to make this hire now? Like, why did you have to make the hire the second your season ended? By the way, the, the news came out in the middle of Oklahoma's game against Baylor on Saturday night. Did you really have to make the hire now? Now, I will say, I do wonder if a few things happened. First of all, I do wonder if this was a hire that the AD really made or a hire that potentially the boosters made. Because the, the rumor out of South Carolina, and it's just a rumor, I'm not reporting it as fact. I'm not saying it as fact. But the rumor out of South Carolina that I've heard from more than one person is that there was one booster 
who paid Will Muschamp's entire buyout of $13 million. Now, it's spread over multiple years. It's not a lump sum. But when you pay a $13 million buyout, you have say in the hire. And I do wonder if maybe this guy or girl did have a lot of pull in the decision that was being made with Shane Beamer. And there's also a possibility that some of the candidates did interview and just weren't interested. Scott Satterfield, by the way, rode in on his white horse to Louisville uh, on Saturday saying, oh, I'm not interested in the job. Yeah, it's, but you interviewed. So like, you can't, you can't pull the I'm not interested, you interviewed. There was also a report that Billy Napier from Louisiana interviewed, and I would assume that happened on Saturday because he announced on Saturday night that he was coming back to, to Louisiana. He played on Friday night at Louisiana. And so I do wonder if maybe those guys interviewed and maybe either they weren't interested or more specifically the school wasn't interested. It could also be that the school already had its mind made up that Shane Beamer was the guy. Um, but to me, again, it goes back down to what I just said. If Shane Beamer really is the guy, did you have to make this decision now? Like, 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 like if this is the guy, did you really have to decide on December 5th with two weeks left in the season when all the best coaches are still coaching, did you really have to jump in and say, this is my guy, I got to get him right now? Like, there, first of all, there's no other jobs that are even open. Forget there being no other jobs that are even open. Even if there are, nobody would have gone and hired Shane Beamer as their head coach. He wasn't on anybody else's list. Nobody else wanted him. If he was available now, he would have been available in two weeks. And to me, that's my problem with this whole circumstance. Is if it, Regardless of whether he's your guy or not, even if he's not... It's your job to go get the best coach available. And so don't you have to do your fans, alums, boosters, the civic duty of waiting to see if you can interview Jamie Chadwell from Coastal Carolina? And maybe it'll take until after his regular season is done, but don't you have to do that? He's right in your state. He's dominating. He, he barely even have to move. I don't know how far South Carolina or Myrtle Beach is from Columbia. What guy wouldn't even have to move? Don't you have to do your due diligence on him? Don't you have to do your due diligence on Hugh Freeze? If you did interview Billy Napier on Saturday, maybe you want to stay for a second or third interview. If he came for the first interview, he's at least interested. So don't tell me you can't get him because he's at least interested. And you went with Shane Beamer, who would have been available in two weeks. And so to me, that's my only issue. Maybe Shane Beamer would be great. Now, I find it hard to believe a first-time head coach is going to come into the SEC East at the third-best job and have a ton of success, maybe the fourth-best job. Kirby Smart did, but Mark Rick left a lot, a lot more than Will Muschamp did. Um, but did you really have to do it right now? Like, like, really, you had to do it right now. That's my big thing. And I'll finally say on the, the South Carolina thing, this is another thing that I find interesting that nobody talks about. South Carolina let go of Will Muschamp two weeks ago. And I'm not criticizing him for doing it. It had run its course. He wasn't the guy. He had one good season. He wasn't the answer. They probably should have never hired him in the first place if we're being perfectly honest. But I bring that up to say, I do find this interesting, is that the reason that South Carolina made the move when they did is because they wanted to pull the old, uh, well, you know, we, um, we want to get, get a head start on the coaching search. And I find it funny because I hear people say that all the time but does the team that ever gets the head start on the coaching search ever actually get the best candidate, ever actually get the best guy? Is it ever actually really an advantage to get an actual head start on the coaching search? Because when I think about it, a few things. First of all, when you're you know, hiring in an SEC or a Big 12 or a Big 10 school, good jobs, 
the best coaches that you want are currently coaching. And they're probably not going to speak to you during their season. So you got to wait till after the season anyway. So getting a head start has no advantage because you can't talk to the guys you want to talk to. But then at the end of the day, the best jobs are the best jobs. Whether you talk, you know, whether you're talking to somebody uh, in, in November, whether you're talking to them in January, whatever. The best jobs are the best jobs. And so, like, if Texas opens up or Alabama opens up or Ohio State opens up, those jobs are going to get the best candidates because they're a better job than South Carolina. Just like, by the way, South Carolina is a better job than Vandy. If Vandy had opened before South Carolina did, there isn't a single coach that thinks he can get the South Carolina job that's going to get the Vandy job because, well, they got to the market first. And I see this all the time, and it cracks me up. You know, even at the NFL level, like I saw the Detroit Lions. Oh, we gotta, we got to fire Matt Patricia to get a jump on the coaching search. Well, crap, man. You're still the Detroit Lions. You still stink. I think they beat the Bears today, by the way. I'm, I'm recording right after these NFL games. Um, but you're still the Lions. And the best job available is the Houston Texans because they got Deshaun Watson. And the best job after that is probably going to be uh, the, the L.A. Chargers because they got Justin Herbert and Joey Bosa and Melvin Ingram and Derwin James. And so it just cracks me up that we do this thing, and, oh, i got to get a jump, jump start on the coaching search. Really? To get that guy? And then if you are, don't you have a due diligence to wait until after the season, talk to everybody that you could possibly talk to to see if they're the right fit or not? I'm guessing if you wanted to talk to Steve Sarkeesian, he's probably not going to do it the week of the LSU game. If you want to talk to Jamie Chadwell, probably not going to do it the week of the BYU game. So it's weird to me. It's fine, whatever. But I'll just say this. I know enough South Carolina fans to know um, I get the obvious ties. I don't think anybody's that excited about it. All right, last little topic, and then I promise that we will get to basketball. And for those of you who want to hear basketball, I appreciate you sticking through this long in the show. But I do want to talk Jim Harbaugh. And it's been a few weeks, and it's kind of crazy because I, I never intended – uh, when college football started that I would talk Michigan this much. But it's been a wild roller coaster season for Jim Harbaugh. He comes in, we know he's not the guy, but you know he's still probably the second or third best coach in the Big Ten, and Michigan's still winning nine, ten games every year. And you kind of wonder, like, is this going to go on in perpetuity forever? He's not going to beat Ohio State. What is the future of this whole deal? And then the program completely crashes and burns this year, uh, two and four right now double or triple overtime win against Rutgers. I lost track after the first overtime when you're playing Rutgers. Uh, they lose to Penn State last week, which was winless. And then, obviously, this week they didn't even play because of COVID within the program. And so I wasn't planning on talking about Jim Harbaugh, but then a funny thing happened. We've been talking about his future for three, four, five weeks now. And all of a sudden, on Saturday and Sunday, two very different reports came out about Jim Harbaugh. The first one, believe it or not, actually came from a good friend of mine, Rob Parker, uh, Fox Sports Radio. For people who don't know, Rob worked in Detroit forever. He worked there for 20, 25 years. He knows the scene well in Michigan, and he's not the kind of guy. He's a good friend of mine. I, you know, I'm going to have him on the show at some point, but he's not the kind of guy that would just report something if he didn't have really good sources, right? Like, he's not Adam Schefter. He's not in the news-breaking business. So if he puts something out, I tend to believe that he knows what the heck he's talking about, especially because it's Michigan where he worked for 25 years. And what he said was, is that Michigan is working on an extension for Jim Harbaugh beyond the season. Not only is he not going to get fired, his contract is going to get extended. Very interesting. Runs counter to a lot of what, what, what has happened, but also runs kind of parallel to what a lot of the Michigan insider recruiting boards and, and, and message boards are reporting. 
is that the recruits aren't hearing anything different that he's expected to be back going forward. Then Sunday happens. And what happens on Sunday? Uh, Pro Football Talk says that Jim Harbaugh is weighing his NFL options. And those are two very drastically different, um, you know, two very drastically different uh, reports on, on one guy. And so what I figured I'd do is I'll break down both. I'll explain why, because I think this is a fascinating story. I think there are so many layers. It's one of the more fascinating stories I can remember in college football in a long time. And I'll end it by basically saying that I don't think anybody has an answer to this whole situation right now, including Jim Harbaugh, but I want to give you an update. And like I said, I do have some pretty good plugins at Michigan, and I kind of have a feel for what I think is going on. But I don't think, again, I don't think anybody, even the AD or Jim Harbaugh, knows who's going to be the head coach at Michigan three weeks from now. And so let's start with the why would you give Jim Harbaugh an extension, right? Program's trending in the wrong direction. He's not the guy. He's not going to beat Ohio State. How do you give him an extension? Well, the answer is both very simple and very complicated. And the reason it's very simple is this, is that he is actually currently working under the shortest contract in college football. And I think I explained this a few weeks ago, but if I didn't, let me get into it here and let me say this. Harbaugh went into last offseason, so, you know, winter of 2020, on a, one, on a two-year contract that ended at the end of the 2021 season, okay? And he went to Michigan. They were ready to negotiate an extension. The plan was still, obviously, to have him there long-term. Then the pandemic happens, and I'll say this. You can criticize Jim Harbaugh for a lot of things, but Jim Harbaugh, to his credit, went to Michigan and said, guys, look, I can't sign an extension in the middle of a pandemic. We have people losing their jobs. The economy's crashing. It's a crazy time. Let's shelve this. Let's put it off. There's no way that we can announce a, 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 an extension in a pandemic and be happy about it. Like we, It's just a bad look PR-wise, and so let's shelve it. And it was actually a good move by Jim Harbaugh. It was actually a respectable move by Jim Harbaugh. But then a weird thing happened. The team stunk a lot, really bad. Um, and so it has put Michigan in this precarious situation where you're in a weird situation where you can't really, uh, you don't really want to extend Harbaugh because you know he's not the answer. But if you don't, it basically makes it impossible um, to bring him back for 2021. Because if you don't extend him, it's impossible to recruit. How can you convince any of these guys in the class of 2021 who are about to sign uh, scholarships, uh, letters of intent in the coming weeks, how can you convince them at all to come to Michigan? How can you recruit for 2022 when your coach is out of one-year contract? You can't do it. And so in a lot of ways, that's why it makes sense for Harbaugh to go to the NFL now. He's currently on a one-year contract. It's not getting better. It's probably not going to get better. There's really no reason to think it's going to get better. And he's still a relatively young guy. He's 56 years old. Um... He is a guy that, that has a lot of years left if he wants to coach. And I think there are NFL teams that are still really interested in him. Never forget, this guy was a play away from winning the Super Bowl. Like, you criticize him for whatever. He almost won a Super Bowl. And that does carry weight in the NFL. I think it carries weight in this offseason where there's going to be a lot of jobs opening up. Texans, which I just talked about a minute ago, Lions, I think the Bears is going to open up. I think the Chargers is going to open up. The Jets is going to open up. That's a lot of jobs and a lot of opportunities, and somebody's going to take a chance on Jim Harbaugh. I also think there's other reasons why Jim Harbaugh would consider the NFL. One, 
His school doesn't really want him back, so it doesn't make sense to come back. You can't come back on a one-year contract. People are interested. I think there's a, a political stuff involved too. Never forget, I talked about it on this show. Him and his school president very publicly beefed in the middle of all that pandemic stuff. Their president, Mark Schlissel, is a infectious disease expert by nature. He was one of the most outspoken people about not playing. Jim Harbaugh was one of the most outspoken people about playing. Uh, and they rubbed each other the wrong way. And so maybe he doesn't want to work for this guy anymore. Maybe he doesn't want to work at a school in the Big Ten that cowered in the face of this pandemic and tried to cancel a season on him. Maybe he's coming back and thinking like, dude, do I really want to come back for another year? Who knows what's going to happen next where they decide that they want to cancel a season or they want to cancel games. Or, oh, by the way, how about going into this weekend with Ohio State if he feels like he has enough guys to play and the school says no or the Big Ten says no? Those are real things. Those are real issues. I will tell you, I had a conversation with somebody that I really, really, really trust that told me that Ryan Day, back in August, when he didn't think Ohio State was going to play, was having those thoughts as well. Ryan Day at the time was thinking, I want to be at Ohio State for the next 20 years. I want to be the Saban of the Big Ten. But if they're not going to let me play, I'm not going to stay here. And so because of that, I think these are all real issues. I think you go to the NFL, you work for one guy, there's not boosters, there's not alums, you don't have to recruit, you work for one guy or girl, that's the owner, you please him or her, you make them happy, you have a good career, and Jim Harbaugh's had success in the NFL. So that's why Harbaugh would consider the NFL, and it makes total sense, right? Here is why I think the extension is a real, real, real possibility. First of all, again, you can criticize Harbaugh for a lot of things. He doesn't want to go out this way, man. He's a Michigan man. He's an alum. He was part of a glory era of Michigan football. And I think in his heart of hearts, he still believes that he can get Michigan back to where it needs to be. Now, can he? I don't know. I don't think so. I haven't seen anything that makes me feel like he can. That's part of it. I think it also makes sense from the school's perspective. The school, you have to understand, this new signing period changes everything. The school, Michigan currently has a top 10 rated recruiting class, including, oh, by the way, a five-star quarterback, the second-ranked quarterback in the country, committed to sign with Michigan. If you extend Harbaugh now, that class stays in place. And maybe it doesn't beat Ohio State, maybe it does, but it's a lot of talent that would go in a million different directions if, if you force Harbaugh out right now. And then finally, what I would say... This is what I heard from my sources at Michigan. I think they have put out feelers as to who could potentially come in and replace Harbaugh, and I don't think they're crazy about the idea of who they could potentially get to replace Jim Harbaugh. And you have to remember, Michigan is a school, a few different things. One, they went through this once. When, they, uh, when, when, when Lloyd Carr, their coach many years ago, Coach Tom Brady, when he retired... They thought they were going to get Les Miles. Les Miles was trying to coach for a national championship. They get left at the altar by Les Miles. They get turned down by Greg Schiano. They end up with Rich Rod. It's a disaster. They fire him after three years. They don't want to go through that again. They don't want to go into a coaching search having no idea who they could potentially get. And I don't know who they would get. The way that I said a minute ago that South Carolina has some legitimately good candidates, I don't know that Michigan has the same. When I look at Michigan... Obviously, look, the big name out there right now is Urban Meyer. That's definitely not happening. Coach at Ohio State. Luke Fickle is not happening. Luke Fickle is, is Ohio State through and through. He's not going to Michigan. Matt Campbell, 
at Iowa State who's been awesome. I don't think he's realistic for Michigan. He's a guy that's built it up at Iowa State. He's got them competing for a Big Ten title. And I think if he was going to go anywhere else, the reports are now that the NFL is kind of snooping around on Matt Campbell. I think it was either Ian Rappaport or Adam Schefter, one of those guys, said, like, the NFL is going to have interest in this guy. And so if you're Matt Campbell, do you want to go to the Big Ten right now, this second, when Ohio State is rolling, um, and you're, it's just a really tough situation. On top of that, it's a tough job for anybody who takes over. One, you got a juggernaut right in your division every single year. Um, two, we all know Michigan is not a great state to recruit in. Jim Harbaugh, all things considered, is doing about as well as he can. And the other thing that I would say, and I've said it on this podcast before, and it makes Michigan fans mad, but it's the truth. I don't think on the national scale it's as good of a job as Michigan fans think. I bring up this stat all the time, and it blows people's minds. Blows people's minds. Michigan, we think of as this incredibly historic program, and it really is. To to its credit, it is. They've had one national championship, which they split with Nebraska, by the way, in 1997. Since 1948, one split national championship. Alabama has like eight over that stretch. Miami has five. LSU has two in the last 15 years. Texas has one. Georgia had one with Herschel Walker. Michigan has a half-split national championship since 1948. And so I think when a lot of these coaches look at that job, they're like, yeah, it's really good. But is it Ohio State good? Is it Texas good? Is it USC good? And if I'm good enough to get Michigan, I'm probably good enough to get one of those jobs, and I'll just wait till that job's open. If Matt Campbell's going to leave for Ohio, for, uh, for uh, leave Iowa State, why wouldn't he just leave and go to Texas or wait to see if USC opens up? And I don't even know that he's a good fit at USC. But the point is, is Michigan really the best that he can do? I don't know. But what I am telling you very simply is that I believe that it is a very precarious situation. It's an evolving situation. And really quick to wrap up on the Harbaugh stuff, one... Don't think of an extension like a lifetime contract, right? I think that's an important part, first of all, is that, um, you know, when, he, when we talk about extension, it could be largely to just kind of keep this recruiting class intact. The, the things that I'm hearing is if it is an extension, it'd be incentive-laced, incentive-based uh, you know, where to make good money, to make the money you're making now, you got to beat Ohio State, you got to go, go to the Big Ten title game, you got to go to the playoffs, stuff like that. And it could be a two- or three-year extension just to kind of keep this recruiting class in place. So that's one. Two, what I would kind of wrap by saying is, I still think it's a fluid situation. I think part of it comes down to, do they play Ohio State this weekend? If they lose to Ohio State 60 to nothing, it makes it hard to extend Harbaugh. It makes it hard to bring him back. It makes it hard to justify to your fans. On the flip side, if they don't play at all because the school gets involved and says, we're not letting you on the field, that might piss off Harbaugh. He might say, I'm done with this political nonsense. So it's a fluid situation. It's a fascinating situation. The one thing I'll I'll say about it is this. I try to come on this show. I try to give you answers. I try to tell you how it's going to be. This is one where I don't even think Michigan, like I said, knows who's going to be their head coach two weeks from now. I don't think Harbaugh knows definitively where he's going to be. If I had to handicap it, I would think that Harbaugh is going to come back in a short contract. But again, I don't know that in this case uh, anything would surprise me as far as Harbaugh. All right. Uh, I think that's it for this. Se- oh my goodness, this co- this college football segment went went long, very long, but I hope it was informative. It was a fun weekend. We're wrapping up college football. We're going to ramp up college hoops. But for the people that do listen to this show more for the college football stuff, 
I did think it was important to get some college football. We went heavy on basketball last week, wanted to get some college football. So that's it. That's all for this segment. Uh, I'm going to take a quick break, get my thoughts together, get a quick drink of water. I'll be back to talk a little college hoops, including that Kentucky debacle. All right, everybody, uh, I am back. Uh, first of all, cannot believe how long that college football segment went. Uh, but yeah, I mean, listen, it's that time of year, and we are at that point where college football, college basketball are overlapping, and it's really, frankly, a fun time of year. I do know that a lot of you do prefer the college bas- college football stuff, excuse me, especially this time of year, so wanted to lead with that as the playoff picture takes shape and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but now let's transition to college basketball, where I was hoping... To, I knew I was going to talk college basketball this weekend, right? But I was hoping uh, that it would actually include number one versus number two, Gonzaga versus Baylor. That does not happen. Instead, I am talking about a team that, frankly, I was hoping I wasn't going to have to talk about, right? Because last Monday's episode, I talked about Kentucky after they lost to Richmond. Wednesday's episode, I talked to, about Kentucky after they lost to Kansas. And my hope was they played Georgia Tech on Sunday that I would not have to talk to, about them again. Instead, they lost for the third straight game, and we are talking about them not only because they lost, but because they literally got punked. It was by far the worst loss that they have had of the season. I think you can legitimately make the case it is one of the worst losses of the John Calipari era in general. And for the first time in a long time, I mean, the Kentucky fan base is really, really, really upset uh, with one of the premier coaches, a Hall of Fame coach, with where this program is and where this program is headed. And so let's start with the game itself, because the bottom line is, again, if it was just another loss, if it's a buzzer beater, you play well, you just run into a better team, that's a lot different than what happened on Sunday. On Sunday, Kentucky played a Georgia Tech team which came into the game 0-2. Now, I'll pseudo-defend Josh Pastner on this, because Josh Pastner, friend of the podcast, um, you know, he decided to do contactless practices before the season, which I don't think was the right move, but I think he quickly realized that, hey, when you're going to play five-on-five in games, we got to do five-on-five in practices, and so I don't think Georgia Tech is as bad as the 0-2 record would indicate, but I would also say that, uh, yeah, you can't lose to them if you're Kentucky, and you certainly can't lose to them in the way that you did. The final score was 79-62, to but you know what this game was? This was a game where a veteran team full of grown men just punked Kentucky. They were dunking. They were yelling in their face. I saw the big guy Moses Wright say, get off my court. This is my court. And as I said on Twitter, what it basically was, you know what it basically was? It was in high school when the nerd gets shoved into the locker. And in this case, uh, the nerd was Kentucky getting shoved into the locker by the older, tougher veteran team in Georgia Tech. And so it's unfortunate, but it's the reality. And like I said... Kentucky fans are about as mad as I have ever seen them because it continues a very disturbing trend over the last couple years. This is the third straight year that this team has really struggled out of the gate. Two years ago, they get destroyed by Duke on opening night. That was the Zion Williamson-RJ Barrett game. Kentucky bounces back nicely. They do go to the Elite Eight, P.J. Washington, Tyler Hero, whatever. Last year, you have an embarrassing loss to Evansville at Rupp Arena after you beat Michigan State in the Champions Classic. And then this year, 1-3 with a loss to Richmond, which is a great program, great school. You shouldn't be losing them if you're Kentucky, though. Kansas, okay, they're a blue blood, but they stink this year. That was a terrible game. As I said on Wednesday's show, neither team deserved to win. Kansas just deserved to lose less. And then you have Sunday against Georgia Tech, where you're playing an 0-2 team, and you get destroyed in every way. 
Uh, and I think the problems are real. I think the concerns are real. I do think there are some issues that need to be talked about because a, a lot of what happened is what on Sunday is what has happened all year. Kentucky really struggled to run any sort of offense. Uh, they're, they're struggling at the point guard position. They have way more turnovers than assists, 21 turnovers, 16 assists on Sunday, which is actually a much better percentage than they had against either Kansas or Richmond in the last couple weeks. Don't have pieces that seem to fit and don't have players that are living up to expectations. Olivier Saar, who was touted by me as the best transfer on the market this offseason, and I truly believed it at the time, went one for four against Georgia Tech from the field and played scared. That is indisputable. If you watched it, you saw it. He got punked. Devin Askew, he's a freshman. I'll give him a little bit of a pass, but he was brought in to be the point guard of Kentucky. That is a, a position that has a lot of responsibility that was played by John Wall, that was played by De'Aaron Fox, that has been played by many, many, many really good players. And when you take on that responsibility, it comes with a burden. Unfortunately, the poor kid isn't living up to it. And it's not that he's a bad kid. It's not that I'm, I'm picking on him specifically. But when Georgia Tech went to that 2-3 zone, it felt like the game was too fast for Devin Askew. It felt like every time he caught the ball, he couldn't wait to get rid of it. And if you're the point guard, you got to be better. He finished the game with one, he finished one of two shooting from the field with one assist and one turnover. You got to be better if you're a point guard. Now, there were some positives. Uh, the rest of the freshmen, Terrence Clark looked really good. He played probably the best game uh, any freshman at Kentucky has played all year, 22 points. Uh, for the Wildcats, three or four shooting from the feet from the three-point line. B.J. Boston, eleven points, three three-pointers made. And Isaiah Jackson's just a monster. He's he's a kid that plays down low, nine points and twelve rebounds. And if you are looking for a silver lining, by far the best shooting night that Kentucky has had all year, as they went eight for nineteen from the field. Of course, none of it matters because this team isn't getting better. You could argue they're getting worse. And as I said, this is one of the worst losses of the John Calipari era. I think indisputably. And I do think that it's fair that while Calipari, I think, does an incredible job, I think he's an incredible coach, I think he's one of the best that I have ever seen, I do think it's fair to start asking some questions after another slow start to another slow season. And I think where I would start by saying is what I always say is like, look, Calipari, you know, he... he, he He's a legend, right? I'm not here to tear down his whole resume. I'm not here to say that he never, uh, you know, he's, a, he's overrated and he just rolls the ball out. That's not what I'm saying at all. But what I am saying is a couple things. First of all, I think there's like a broader, bigger conversation that's maybe for another day about how he just goes about building this roster. Um, because I do think it's really hard in this era to rely so heavily on the one-and-done high school freshman um, especially when you can't really build a bench out, right? Because first of all, if you're not getting those elite, elite, elite guys, the Zions, the RJs, the Anthony Davises, the Derrick Roses, whoever, um, you need to have a bench, you need to have depth, and you need to have veterans. But it's hard to keep veterans because they keep getting recruited over. And so you bring in a guy that you want to, you want to stay for two or three years, and it's like, well, that kid wants to know that he's going to have a shot to earn his playing time instead of getting recruited over in the next recruiting class. And so there's probably a broader conversation to have about how the rosters are even being built. Um, and that's probably like a very valid conversation. I also think Calipari's been doing it this way for close to 15 years now, dating back to his time at Memphis, and I don't think it's really going to change. So I think the broader question has to be about this team, how it's coached, how it's managed. And what I'll say is this. I'll say what I said on Twitter. I think two things can be true about Calipari. 
I think on the one hand, we can go ahead and say, well, he's going to figure it out because he's Calipari and he always does. I think that's totally fair, and we'll get into that in a second. I also think it's fair for fans to be frustrated and for fans to say, you're the second highest paid coach in the sport behind Coach K, and he might be first. I don't know. He makes over $8 million a year. He has every resource available to him. He has probably the largest coaching staff in America, uh, multiple support staff members who are, who's nothing, who has, whose job is nothing but to game plan, and they're getting out game planned every single week, every single game. And so I think those two things can be true, and I think if there's one broad takeaway that I have about Kentucky at this moment, it's that. We can have the conversation that Kentucky will probably figure it out because Calipari does, but we can also have the conversation of, why does a Kentucky fan have to wait to get it figured out, right? Duke doesn't have to wait until February for things to get figured out every year. Uh, Kansas doesn't have to wait until February to get things figured out. Virginia, Villanova, Gonzaga, Baylor, on and on and on and on and on. Maybe Baylor's not fair because they're kind of new on the scene, but you get the point. These programs that are good every single year don't have to wait until February to figure it out. North Carolina, by the way, three freshmen in their rotation that play huge minutes. Just went to Maui slash Asheville. Looked pretty good. They have a couple more veterans, but the point remains. I, I understand a Kentucky fan that's sitting there saying, like, why do I have to wait until February for my team to be good every year? And so we do have to start with the idea of Cal Perry always figures it out. And I do think that's an important point, right? Because I, I want to side 100% with Kentucky fans, but I do think we do need to understand that we need to understand, like, this is part of the deal. And... Whatever you think is going to happen in November, December, January, it does get figured out. Last year, Kentucky did win the SEC. They did go 13-2 and down the stretch. As I said, once SEC play hit, they basically played one bad half the entire month of February on. That was against the second half against Tennessee in a game that they were completely dominating. But, you know, they went to Arkansas and won. They went to uh, play Auburn at home and beat Auburn at home. They beat LSU. Uh, so, 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 like, that part can be true. He does figure it out. The year before, you lose to Duke, but you're still in the Elite Eight with a chance to go to the Final Four. 2018, I've, I said it a few episodes ago. P.J. Washington makes a foul shot or two. They're playing Loyola Chicago to go to the Final Four. Year before that, De'Aaron Fox, they should have been in the Final Four. So Cal Perry does figure it out, and that is an important part of this context. But I also think it's an important part of the context of what I said a minute ago. Calipari gets paid $8 million a year. It's fair to ask, why does it take until February every year? And it can't always be that I'm young. It can't always be that I have a new roster because guess what? Guess what? Like I said, Kansas has an entirely new roster. Um, you know, Duke has a new roster. Uh, by the way, even in your own league, Alabama has a new roster. Alabama has like one or two guys that played last year. They just went to Maui and won two games. Arkansas has a new roster. Now they have an easier schedule. But the schedule's on you. You're the one that makes the schedule. So that's part of it too. And I do think it's fair, and I do think it's fair when you're making $8 million a year and when you have the biggest support staff in America and when you have every resource available to you to ask these questions. I would also say some of it goes beyond Calipari and goes to his staff. Never forget, this is, again, probably the biggest support staff in America, best paid support staff in America. What are you guys doing? I looked it up just to make sure. In the last couple years, Kentucky has taken two guys out of assistant coaching roles where they would have to go on the road recruiting, do all that kind of stuff, and put them in basketball operations roles only. Tony Barbie and John Robick. I'm not going to sit here and claim I know what they do behind the scenes. But if your job is not to recruit, it means you should be spending all your time on game planning and on player development 
And that clearly isn't happening, at least not at the rate that you need it to happen. I would say this, the three coaches that are allowed to recruit, they're young, they're ambitious, they're hungry. I get it, except for Bruiser Flint, who's, who's, who's a veteran. But the coaches that are recruiter, that are no, mo- mostly recruiters, they can't go on the road right now. It's not like they're gone once the game's finished and they come in for the games only. They can't leave campus. They can't go on the road to recruit. So they should be, I don't want to say they should be doing this or that. What I am saying is there is no reason that this team should be this bad when all of the coaching staff is in Lexington, and this is one of the biggest, most well-paid coaching staffs going forward. Now, all I'll say is that as weird as it sounds, like I do think it is going to get figured out. Like, first of all, that Georgia Tech game before it got blown open was there for the taking. Kansas was there for the taking, and this team just hasn't taken it. I do think there are some bright spots. Terrence Clark, like I said, played by far the best game any Kentucky player has played all year. Davion Mintz, I think, has actually been good. Wasn't great on Saturday. Uh, Problem with him is he's better playing off the ball, and they're basically needing him, excuse me, to play on the ball. But I think he's pretty good. Isaiah Jackson is a total revelation. I think you could argue he has been the biggest surprise in college basketball this year. So there are positives. And the funny thing is, I actually think it's going to get figured out. But I also don't think it's unfair for fans saying, dude, you make $8 million a year. I don't always want to hear how we're young. I don't always want to hear how we need time, how we got to figure it out, how we're starting over from scratch, because there's a lot of programs that do that, and there's a lot of programs that aren't getting blown out by Georgia Tech uh, early on in the season. All right, uh, I do very briefly uh, want to talk about, um, very briefly want to talk about the rest of college hoops, and what I would kind of say is a couple things is, First of all, um, first of all, I do want to say that the Gonzaga Baylor thing just sucked, and there is no big takeaway. But for people who do not know, Gonzaga Baylor number one, number two, they were supposed to play on Saturday, CBS game of the year, and it gets canceled because there was a positive within the Gonzaga program, two positives, one player, uh, and the game was canceled. And it sucks, and we later found out that Gonzaga is actually shutting down operations here for a few weeks. But the bottom line remains, I do think there's an important teaching lesson out of this, and it's one that I told you about a few weeks ago. And that teaching lesson is very simply this. Every game, every circumstance is different in terms of why games get played and why they don't. And what do I mean by that? So when they announced the Baylor-Gonzaga game was canceled, I had a ton of you. Well, Gonzaga had a positive against Auburn. Why did that game get played? Well, it got played because it was in Florida. Florida has a different uh, governing body, a different health department, a different uh, all sorts of things, frankly, that go into that decision. This game was played in Indiana, different health department, all that kind of stuff. And so I just want you to know that that is something that we are going to have to deal with throughout this college basketball season where... um, you know, this, this school might have one positive test and they might play and this school might have one positive test and they don't. And it comes down to what state you're playing in, what the health department says, what your conference says, what your school says, because every place is a little bit different. I just think that's really important. Otherwise, that's all I really got. I can't talk about a game that wasn't played, uh, but it was uh, an opportunity for, uh, you know, which would have been great for college ba- basketball, but it didn't happen. And look, Gonzaga and Baylor are going to be fine. I was told Baylor actually had another game lined up if they had just announced it the night before, but I guess Gonzaga didn't find out about their test until, oh, I guess it was Saturday morning, but the game was called off, and it was a bummer. Only other topic I really want to hit on very quickly, Villanova played Texas on Saturday, on Sunday, and I just want to give Texas a little bit of credit. 
And I talked about him on, uh, I guess it was Wednesday's episode after they won the quote-unquote Maui Invitational. I got to give Texas credit, right? Shaka Smart has been a Torres punching bag for years. And again, I think it's justifiable. I talked about it a few weeks ago, a few episodes ago. He has a losing record in the Big 12. He's never won an NCAA tournament game. And this coming off the Rick Barnes era, where they made the NCAA tournament, I think it was 12 out of 13 years or 13 out of 14 years. Rick Barnes made four or five Sweet 16s, and it wasn't enough for Texas fans. So if it's not enough for Texas fans, I got to hold Shaka Smart to the same standard. But what I would also say is Texas is a really impressive team this year. They went to the Maui tournament in Asheville and beat Indiana, beat North Carolina, and then they played Villanova on Saturday, on Sunday. And they ended up losing. But if you watch the game, I came away really impressed with Texas. And I think this is a team that is legitimately, you're going to think I'm crazy, I think they're legitimately one of the top 10 teams in college basketball. They're big along the front line, super athletic, play hard, play really good defense, and on the perimeter, they have maybe the best backcourt in college basketball that nobody's talking about, and that's a kid named Courtney Ramey and Matt Coleman. Matt Coleman, behind the scenes, maybe been a little bit of a punching back of mine too. I don't know if I've ever criticized him on the show, but he was this really inconsistent player who has been awesome this year for Texas. He had 17 points and three assists on Sunday, averaging 16 and five assists coming into the game. And Courtney Ramey is just a bucket getter, uh, a junior, a kid that, as I said uh, uh, on last episode, he was the last kid to ever commit to Rick Pitino at Louisville. And then obviously when, when Rick Pitino left or when Rick Pitino was fired, uh, he ended up leaving, but he is now at Texas. And I'm just telling you, I'm not going to break it down. This podcast has gone on way too long, but I'm just telling you, Texas is for real. They did not beat Villanova, but it was a great game. It was a fun game. Villanova is kind of who Villanova always is. Pump fakes, ball fakes, three-point shooting, passing. They're just so good at what they do, and they're going to be fun to watch all year. All right, everybody. That is all for this episode of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. It is time for me to definitively get out of here. Long episode, fun episode, but I really do appreciate you guys sticking through and being part of what I do. Uh, before we get out of here, I want to remind you, please make sure that you're subscribed to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast, iTunes, the Podcast Addict app, Podbean, Spotify, TuneIn Radio, wherever you listen to podcasts, make sure that you're subscribed to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. Also, make sure to rate and review the show. Go ahead, give us a quick five stars. Really does help us move up the iTunes charts. Uh, do it for me, because I just talked in your ear for two straight hours. It's what I do. I have fun doing it, so I'm not really complaining. But go ahead, give me a quick five stars. Also, make sure you're following on social media at Aaron underscore Torres on Twitter, at Aaron Torres Pod on Instagram. Uh, and as I said, if you need a gift this holiday season, cameo.com slash Aaron underscore Torres. I'm uh, really happy to do a personalized video for you, for a family member. If you have a brother or sister, a mom or dad who listens to this show and you think they'd enjoy a personalized shout-out from the man who runs the podcast at Sweeping America, uh, just let me know. But that is all for today's show. Shout-out to Torrent Craig. Uh, Shout-out to Rachel, who hates my voice. I will be back on Wednesday following a Tuesday night of college hoops. We will also get in some college football. Hope everybody has a great day. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today. 
at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.